Well, good morning again, everybody. We have started a new series uh, that we're starting this Sunday, as you saw, the faith that we sing. Uh, so often, I don't think we consider the faith that we are singing every time we join in song or hymn. We think sometimes it's merely for our entertainment or something else to do to fill the time, or maybe some people like singing. There are other people who don't like singing. Uh, but we're actually singing our faith as we join in hymns and songs of praises. And so for the next three weeks, we're going to take uh, three kind of classic hymns, and we're going to discuss what, what exactly are we singing about? What is the faith that we're singing? Some of these hymns have great stories behind them, as well as the theology and scriptures that uh, back them up. And so this Sunday, we're going to be discussing that song we just sang in the garden. But before I go any further, how about we turn to God in prayer? Because I need a little bit of prayer. I don't know about you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this opportunity we have to gather in your name to discuss your word and discuss these songs that we sing about you and your faithfulness and your love and your judgment and your mercy and everything, Lord. We pray that you would guide us through your spirit. That when we worship, we don't gather alone. We gather with others in your spirit is present with us as we pray that your spirit would guide us, that you would silence any voice in us but your own. And Lord, I pray that as my word strays from yours, may it fall away and quickly be forgotten, but may your word, your truth, and your promise remain upon our hearts forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray, and all the saints say, Amen. So I don't know about you, but as I listen to this classic hymn, In the Garden, uh, I'm reminded of a story of a young boy uh, who once was convinced that he had discovered the name of God. And so he went to his parents one day and he said, Hey, Mom and Dad, I know God's name. And his parents were like, Well, that, that's great, son. You know, God has, has many names. And his parents began to talk to him and said, You know, in fact, sometimes we, we don't just call him God, we call him Almighty God. And his father real quickly kind of jumped in and said, you know what? You can also refer to God as Father. Because Jesus did that often, and he taught his disciples and us to do the same when, when he taught them the Lord's Prayer. And then his mom jumped in real quickly and said, you know, the Bible also refers to God through his past actions as well as heroes of the faith when we talk about being the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we're reminded of all that God has done. And then Father continuing the biblical lesson, decided to throw, drop a little knowledge on his son and said, you know, we, we also have plenty of other names throughout Scripture for God. We, we call him Everlasting Father, the one true God, and we even use some old Hebrew words, and we'll, we may call him Adonai, or Elohim, or El Shaddai, the names go on and on from there. And Mom interjected real quickly that there is an ancient, ancient, ancient sacred name that even some traditions say is too holy to utter. And so they won't say it, and will say Lord in its place, and that name being Yahweh. But the boy kind of stared blankly at his parents and started scratching his head as if digesting this overload and overflow of information. And then he constructed his reply and said, no, no, that's, that's great and all, Mom and Dad, but um, I know God's real name. God's real name is Andy. The parents said, Andy. Uh, son, that's, I'm sorry, that's not in scripture anywhere. Where, where are you getting that? It's, you know, it's like the song, Mom and Dad, you know? Andy walks with me. Andy talks with me. 
Andy tells me I am his own? I mean, is this God's name Andy? Perhaps you've heard stories like that about Andy walking with you, Andy talking with you, Andy telling you he's his own. You know, it's a beautiful thing when a child misunderstands. In fact, we were just talking about this earlier of uh, Howard be your name and the Lord's Prayer. Growing up, I thought God's name was Howard for the longest time. We said, Howard be your name. So I, I thought just named Howard. Why not? It's more personable. You know, part the Herald Angel Sings. Some angel named Harold. I mean, who are you talking about? But you know, there's a beautiful, there's, but you know, can misunderstanding actually lead to understanding? Can it? Do you think that some misunderstanding can lead to further understanding? You think so? A few, few months ago in our newsletter that I sent out to everybody, I actually discussed one of these misunderstandings of our oldest Micah and how he still, to this day, thinks communion bread is community bread. And so he's very excited this morning when he found out we were having community bread at church. He loves community bread. And, you know, it's really cute when you hear that, but you know what? It, it led me to a deeper understanding because hearing him talk about community bread then reminded me of one of the beautiful aspects of communion. The communion is about drawing us together in community, that we commune together. I mean, there's the same root word there, together. And so often we think that this is just personal snack time with Jesus that we're coming up and we reflect and so often we're so quiet and somber during the time you think we're at a funeral, when sometimes I think we should be celebrating, we should be skipping up to the table like, all right, we get to come to the table with Jesus. But we think of it as this personal experience when really it's, it's about drawing us together. And not just us in this room, it's people across town sharing communion. It's people in another country, and then time and space don't even form a barrier. But when we join at this table, we're joining with saints who have sat around this table for a long time because Jesus is the host, and his table extends beyond you. So that little misunderstanding of a word, for me, led to deeper understanding. And while this story earlier is, is funny, and I don't know if it's true or not, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if there's a child somewhere who thought God's name was Andy. But I think in this misunderstanding, there can be a deeper truth, a deeper understanding that it leads to. Do you know God's name? Because isn't there power in knowing a name? Doesn't it feel good when somebody knows your name and you come and they can speak it to you? Because knowing someone's name starts the bridge of relationship, doesn't it? It's hard to have any sort of relationship with somebody if you don't even know their name. And so it starts this bridge of relationship, starts to process to deeper understanding. You know, names lead to familiarity. Names lead to familiarity. Can the mere mention of a certain name take you back in memory to a particular place, person, experience, or event? Are there some of those names that you can do that? I mentioned throughout some names. You know, uh, when Kate and I were trying to come out with come up with names for our boys, it, it was it was a long process trying to find names we agreed upon. Because I was like, oh, I really like this name. And Kate would go, oh no, I need to do that. 
name. I don't think she said dude. She probably said guy. I'm saying dude. So I know a dude with that name. And he, no, we're not giving our kid that name. I'm not going to pick that person ever call with a child. And then we throw out another name. We go, oh, no, no, no I, I can't do that. There was a kid who bullied me, and his name was Reuben. We didn't consider Reuben, but maybe we should have. But there's names, certain names can bring up, because it brings us back. It connects us. When you hear the title in the garden, and when you heard the first few notes of that song, did it take you back anywhere for anybody? If you grew up in church, did you grow up singing that song? It has a certain nostalgia to it, doesn't it? Did it for you, Matt, when you started picking it out to play it? I remember singing it in my yeah. church choir. What did, what, did it make, what, did, what did it bring to mind for you? Did it take bring back any memories? My grandmother. Your grandmother? Yeah. I called her. I, I was working on the song, and I called her. <laughs> and I said, hi. You know. I'm glad I could be an excuse to give you that song and have an excuse to talk to Grandma. I mean, it's, it's interesting how songs can do that. You know, sights and smells can trigger memory, but songs can trigger memories as well. You know, as a pastor, I've officiated quite a few funerals over the past decade in ministry. And what's interesting is that... Uh, while my basic format doesn't really change, I do try to tailor the services to the, the family and their desires. And sometimes the, the deceased has already planned out everything. I've done a few of those funerals where I was handed a folder and said, here, this is it. This is everything. Like, okay, let's run with it. Let's go. And then other times we're working with the family to pick out the songs are one of the places where you really can get more personal. Like, what are the songs that have meaning to them, to you as a family? as well as the scripture passages. And what was interesting is, generationally, you'd see a difference in songs, because, you know, an octogenarian is a little less likely uh, a chance they're going to pick something from Chris Tomlin, or Hillsong United, or Elevation Worship, than anything you're going to hear on the Caleb radio stations and Christian radio now. They would go back to the classics. And often the hymns that we didn't really sing anymore. In the Garden was one of those. We didn't really sing it. In church. But man, I heard it at a lot of funerals. It was probably one of the top requested hymns for most of the funerals I've done over the years. And I found that interesting. Even though we didn't sing in church, here was this song that had this nostalgia to it. And even me hearing it brought took me back to my small town church and standing in the crowded pews, those wooden pews that before we even had cushions, they later put cushions, thank goodness. But they were just the wooden pews, and I remember being crowded in with my family, and us all singing together, and singing that song. And the garden is one of those common hymns, and it has a certain comfort to it, doesn't it? When you're grieving. As time marches on, age-old hymns are sequestered to the vault. Kind of like the Disney vault. They keep putting movies the Disney Bowl, and then they bring them back out so they can make more money. In the Garden is a beautiful hymn with a simple message, but you know what? It's not without its critics as well. And some people could put it in the vault for various reasons. And so here, I think it's fair for me to give a little disclaimer and make a confession to you. So you ready for it? Ready for my big confession? My confession to you is this. And Please, don't be offended, anybody. I'm not a big fan of the hymns. I 
must be honest. It has a nostalgia to it. It takes me back. But there's probably good reason why I've never chosen to sing it and worship here. It's just, it's, it's not one of my favorites. I remember sitting as a child listening to it, but you know what? The slow pace of it, sometimes it's just, it's great, especially when it's a slow place. It was, it was nice hearing the guitar, because I, I had not heard it on the guitar. We always heard it on an out-of-tune organ. And when you play it on an out-of-tune organ and it's slow, it sounds like a funeral dirge. And it's just like, oh my gosh, move on. And especially if you have the little old lady in the church who's still playing the organ because nobody else can play, but had no sense of rhythm. And it's just sitting there, kind of banging it out, going just as slow as Christmas. And you're thinking, oh my gosh, are we ever going to get through the song? There's only three verses. But you're playing it as if there's 30. And so that was one thing. I just, just The tune, it just seems a little dated to me. And then the older I got, I started looking at the lyrics. And, you know, interesting thing, a lot of critics of modern-day worship music is that it's Jesus' boyfriend music. It's like, it's all about Jesus being your boyfriend. And I just... You know, oh, Jesus loves me, this and that, and that's good stuff, but people critique modern music, which just, it's about Jesus being your boyfriend. It's just, it doesn't have theological depth to it. But the irony is, you look at it in the garden, and it doesn't necessarily have deep theological depth. And you just change a few words, and you might as well be singing about Jesus your boyfriend. Finding you in the garden. You know? And so there's that kind of thing that just comes across as a little sappy, you know? I just, you know, but, but, but before you start hurling tomatoes at me and maybe throwing gardening implements because we're talking about in the garden, hear me out for a moment. Just because I don't care for this hymn doesn't mean in preparing for this sermon, in my perhaps misunderstanding of it, I wasn't led to a deeper understanding. Now, it still may not be my favorite hymn and probably never will be. But there is a certain beauty to it when you hear the story behind them. Because how often do we consider where these hymns and poetry and things come from? And, you know, when we miss that, we miss the death. Because this is an expression of somebody's heart, isn't it? It's an expression of somebody's heart. Well, the story behind this hymn is C. Austin Miles composed it in 1912. That was a long time ago. 1912, he composed it. That in itself isn't profound, but when you hear kind of the story behind it, it leads to a little bit more uh, understanding. Miles attended Philadelphia College of Pharmacy and the University of Pennsylvania in 1892. He later abandoned his career as a pharmacist and began writing gospel songs. He was published first with Hall Mac, the Hall Mac Company, which he later became an editor and manager and ended up working with him. 37 years. So a pharmacist turned musician. How often do you find that? But Miles' hobby on the side was photography. Isn't that interesting? That might connect with Kate, the photographer over here. But he had this, this hobby of photography and he ended up constructing uh, his own darkroom to develop his own film. Most of us don't use darkrooms anymore because of digital photography, but back in the day, you had to use a darkroom. And so while he was in this dark room, he discovered in the special red lighting that you have in dark rooms. Anybody here ever been in a dark room? No? You have this kind of special uh, low UV uh, lighting that's just red. So you can see what you're doing, but it doesn't mess with the chemicals. Because you, you, know, you 
uh, show regular light on film in your room. And so he learned that in this special red lighting of his dark room, that he could read his Bible. They kind of made the letters pop off the page and on the white page. And so oftentimes, while he was uh, going through the process of developing his film, which would take some time as you're moving it between the different chemical baths, he would sit and read scripture. And being a musician, oftentimes it was with in mind of, well, maybe where, this may be where the next song is coming from. Well, one day in March of 1912, he was developing film and waiting for it to be complete. He picked up his Bible, and it opened up to John chapter 20. Now, John chapter 20, to kind of set it up, uh, is following Jesus' crucifixion and death. And we find Mary Magdalene coming to the tomb to come and grieve and perhaps here the body, and there's lots of different interpretations there, but let's, let's actually go to the passage and read it together. So John, uh, John chapter 20, and we're going to start at verse 11, because even though it's a great passage all the way through, starting at verse 11 is what really kind of connects with what we're discussing today. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord. I don't know where they have laid him. <coughs> Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, I love that. She said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned, and she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Isn't that a powerful passage? Mary comes to the tomb seeking Jesus only to be distraught because she goes and he's not there. And then in the place are two angels, and this painting has them in wings, but they likely maybe didn't even have wings. It just looked like normal people. It's like, okay, there's people in white hanging out in the tomb. Where's Jesus? And she's distraught, and then she turns around and she sees Jesus, but she doesn't know it's him. For some reason, she thought he was the gardener, coming to tend things. And said, well, where did you put him? Just tell me. Let me know. It was interesting. He said, woman, at first. But then when was it that her recognition clicked? In seven days. In seven days. There's power in the name, isn't there? Apparently, that struck Miles in the reading of this passage, in the red light of the dark room. Mary in her confusion and surprise, noticing the body of Jesus gone, Jesus standing nearby, unrecognizable, and then a leap of joy when he utters her name and she recognizes. Miles later wrote that he imagined himself being present in the garden, witnessing this event. Then in the darkness of his dark room, he considered that 
This is an experience that is limited to a brief moment 2,000 years ago because it's really the daily companionship of walking with Jesus for me. You didn't have to be in the garden 2,000 years ago to experience that closeness, to hear your name in the voice of Jesus. That's where the inspiration came for a poem that later became a song in the garden. Doesn't that add a little more depth to a simple, simple song? My mind, in hearing that, is drawn back to earlier in John's Gospel, in chapter 10, when Jesus is talking about being the Good Shepherd. Consider this, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. Hear this, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them. What are the sheep drawn to? His voice. Hearing and knowing each of them by name. I don't know about you, but sheep look a lot the same to me. I didn't even tell them apart, but the Good Shepherd can tell them apart. The Good Shepherd knows them by name, knows them personally. And especially in this time, names had power. Names had meaning. It wasn't just some, something you call someone. Meeting. Sometimes it was a link to the past, a family. Um, sometimes it was a hope for the future. You know, in naming our children, Kate and I actually thought about that because I was thinking, you know, in a, in a way, when you name a child, you are placing a hope upon them or a connection. And Micah in, in Hebrew means in the likeness of God. Now, I realize he doesn't always display God's likeness, at least in my opinion, but. My hope was for it sets that reminder that we all are created in the likeness of God, aren't we? And my hope that as, as he grows and matures is that he will display that likeness more and more as he walks more and more into his faith, as he grows in the disciple of Jesus Christ, that hopefully people would look at him and not see him as God, but see God in him be drawn. Names have power, and the good shepherd knows your name and utters your voice, and in his voice, your name. It speaks of a, a closeness. Do you think it's important that your creator know your name? Do you think that's important? Why is it important that God would know your name? Why? To get our attention. To get our attention? Especially when you hear your full name, if God's anything like parents. <coughs> That's a darkened cherry! I know the look then. <laughs> to know that I belong to him. That you belong to him. And that he loves us. And that he loves us. And that he loves something that you don't like. Mm-hmm. Would it be the same if God just said, hey, person, hey, guy, yo, Bubba, you know all the names I call when I can't remember somebody's name? And, hey, buddy, what's up? Buckaroo Chief. <laughs> but God knows your name. 
just know beyond just that passage, my mind is also drawn earlier to the scriptures. My mind is drawn to the garden itself, the very first garden. The garden of Eden, Eden in Genesis. Because we are told in Genesis that there was just this closeness. This is before the fall, before the forbidden fruit, before the first sin. There was this closeness. In fact, we're even given the impression that God walked the garden and it was a normal thing. Because we later find out right after the fall that uh, when, when Adam and Eve heard God walking in the garden, they hid themselves. But you know what, it, it makes it sound like you know, this walking in the garden was something that God did on an ordinary basis. There's this intimacy. God was close by. And I think in us, there's this deep-seated need to be known by God. Because sure, the fall happened. Sin entered the world. They chose themselves in their own control over God. And even that forbidden fruit, the, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And sure, we live in the effects of that sin that is a separation from God, but you know what? That hasn't changed our original design, has it? Our original design was that we were in <coughs> communion and fellowship with God and with all creation. Sin tarnishes that, but it doesn't change the need we have for that. The need we have to be known, to be known by others, to be known by our God. Jesus came to repair, redeem, and resurrect that connection. He calls you by name back into that relationship. And isn't that a beautiful thing? He calls your name and he walks with you. He talks with you. He tells you that you are his own. It may sound cheesy at first, but when we consider it, it's quite the God of the known and unknown universe and universes knows you by name. What other faiths have a God like that? Most other faiths have a God who's incredibly impersonal. And it's just you, you fear the gods. Or if there's no real God, it's more of a, a force, a karma. And so you're just trying to unify with that and, and get yourself right. It's incredibly impersonal. But we have a God who is incredibly personal. God knows you and wants to know you deeper. He wants you to know him deeper. Amen. That's some part of the beauty of every time we come to the communion table. Take and eat and remember, Jesus tells us. Remember his sacrifice. Remember his love. Remember the purpose of why he even went through all the terrible crucifixion. It was for you, for me, for us. Does that sound like a God who doesn't care? Our God cares immensely. And in a world where we're seeking notoriety, and so many people are seeking fame, really that's just a perverted feeling within us to be known. It's perverting something that God created. God, we want to be known. And so we will seek to fill that with other things. But you know what? Whether you're famous or whether nobody knows your name, God knows your name. You are a child of 
God. With Jesus, that's the greatest hope we have. That's the faith that we sing in this song on the mountain. So perhaps you shouldn't be too much like me to be so quickly to dismiss something just because you don't like it without maybe considering that perhaps you might be misunderstanding something. And maybe you're misunderstanding consider it belief to a deeper understanding. Because God is in the garden. Don't we want to be in the garden of God? Let's go to God's prayer. God, we thank you for this moment we have to consider this age-old song. And Lord, even if we don't sing it a lot, we consider what it is telling us. It's telling us about a God, you, who is incredibly personal, who wants to know us on a deeper level, who wants to connect with us on a deeper level, that you will call us out by name to be with you. Please envelop us with that love. And in those moments when we doubt our worth, may we hear our name being uttered on the very words in the voice of Jesus. And in his name, we pray.